the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and I'm so glad you're able to join me tonight. My first guest this evening is Carl Hoffman, the President and CEO of Population Services International, or PSI, a nonprofit focused on healthy behavior. Their typical health consumer? Well, they think of her as a woman named Sarah. To think about our the person we're working for as a health consumer. We don't think of Sarah as a beneficiary. We don't think of her as a recipient. We think of her as a consumer with choices mm-hmm. and a consumer who deserves the dignity of being marketed to. And then you'll hear from Fred Watts, the executive director of the Police Athletic League of New York. They serve young people starting at the age of two. And we're also very proud that in the evaluations we've done, 100% of our children have been sort of uh, evaluated as ready for kindergarten. And that, you know, in my day, being ready for kindergarten doesn't, didn't mean that much, quite frankly, everybody. But I'm the father of two kids, and being ready for kindergarten in the current world is, a meaning, is meaningful. And if you're coming from a difficult environment, it's more meaningful. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, March 15th. Bloomberg Philanthropies, in partnership with John Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, and the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative has launched a new program to support American mayors as they respond to the coronavirus outbreak. The Internal Revenue Service first official look at how charities fared during the first year of the new federal tax law shows nonprofits saw a 3% after inflation drop in donations in 2018 over the year before. Digital fundraising efforts are almost three times as effective as phone fundraising campaigns at getting donors to give and increasing overall revenue, according to a new survey. The heirs to the Walmart fortune have donated Walmart shares worth an estimated $48 billion to their family trust. And finally, a new book argues that if homeowners converted just half their lawn to native plantings, it would collectively create an area larger than all national parks in the lower 48 states combined. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Carl Hoffman of PSI right after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Population Services International, PSI, is a global nonprofit organization focused on the encouragement of healthy behavior and affordability of health products. It was founded in 1970, and as it commemorates its 50th year, it's a pleasure to have with us Carl Hoffman, the president and CEO of Population Services International. Good evening, Carl, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thanks, Denver. I'm happy to be here. So with this being the 50th year, we should probably begin by having you give us some of the history of the organization, how it got started and how it has evolved over this past half century. So PSI, as you mentioned, was formed in 1970. It's got a colorful history. started by two guys, very entrepreneurial guys, who were studying public health at the University of North Carolina, Phil Harvey and Tim Black. They were passionate about global population issues. A lot of people were back in the 1960s and 70s. I remember, yeah. Yeah. But they were also business people. And uh, they... uh, found a very creative way to make some money, which involved um, selling contraceptives through the mail to American college students. Mm-hmm. Turns out, that's a profitable business. <laughs> and uh, over time, that business grew into a separate entity, and the profits from that became the seed capital for PSI. And that's how we started 50 years ago. Always working overseas, working on family planning, reproductive health, and then a lot of other disease areas as we grew. And uh, we're feeling 50 and young. Yeah, yeah. Now, how many countries are you operating in now, and how many employees? We work in about 50 countries, actually, wow. coincidentally, and about 6,000 employees around the world. Mm-hmm. Carl, speak a little bit about the um, impact of power and privilege in global health, and does this power dynamic hold global health back? 
I think it holds development back. Certainly, global health has a subset of that, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, all of us these days are confronted by the need to be mindful of how privilege works and doesn't work. Um, you know, our archetypical health consumer, we may have a chance to talk about her. We think of her as Sarah. She's a person uh, definitionally without power. She mm-hmm. lives in the global south. Just about everything is arrayed against her. But she's got dignity, and she ought to be met with that. Uh, we ought to treat her with dignity in terms of how we approach her uh, with health programming. I think all of us who operate from a position of privilege, I certainly do, need to be really mindful of how that privilege engages with impact in the global south. An organization like mine has to manifest that interest by being diverse, by looking for different sorts of funding, by including different voices within our leadership, by hiring different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. So we look and feel different now than we did 50 years ago when we started. Tell us a little bit more about Sarah, because I find it so interesting when an organization has an archetype like that. I mean, she's an individual. She's not a demographic or population, and that's really reflected from what I've seen for the people I've met down at PSI, the way you approach your work. Well, thank you. I hope so. Um, You know, we're a social marketing company. Mm -hmm. We started out in the beginning delivering products and services to people who weren't served by the public health sector. And marketing and branding has always been a part of our identity. It's how we approached our work. And it only made sense for an organization like us to begin to look at our consumers, first of all, as consumers, Mm -hmm. and second of all, to borrow the best the best approaches from the private sector and use things like archetyping to get inside the minds of our consumers, to understand what her barriers are, to understand what she's trying to overcome on a daily basis, to conceive of our programs and design them with her at the center. Yeah, You know, donors pay for most of what we do. Donors have their own ideas about what they want to accomplish, and so do we. But if we start with Sarah... And Sarah's a name we picked because it works in most of the markets it's where we work. Every language just about, yeah. yeah. And if we start with her, uh, we're usually going to wind up in a good place with programming. And let me say this, Demer. I mean, what's really been nice for us as we've embraced this concept is you go anywhere across those 6,000 people in the world of PSI and you say, who's Sarah? Everybody will have an answer for you. Oh, no question about it. Everybody knows That's it. right. And she is an individual, which was the thing that She's really struck individual. me. She's not like we treat everybody this way. They all have different needs. And right. if you think of them as individuals, it really changes uh, everything that you do. Talk a little bit about that model because essentially you are not like the traditional development model. Speak a little bit about how you differ. Well, as I said, you know, the approach from the very beginning was around private sector channels, commercial channels. A lot of organizations use that. Mm -hmm. I think we were one of the early ones to embrace those approaches. And again, also to think about the person we're working for as a health consumer. We don't think of Sarah as a beneficiary. We don't think of her as a recipient. We think of her as a consumer with choices Mm -hmm. and a consumer who deserves the dignity of being marketed to. That model over 50 years has developed into this large organization that I'm privileged to head now. And it means different things in different places. Um, You know, a lot of our work involves managing supply chains to ensure that products get to where they need to get to. Or working on quality service provision, making sure that Sarah, if she's going to the public sector or private sector, and a lot of people in the global south go to the private sector Mm -hmm. for their health care, let's try try and make sure that that quality is improved and is of a higher standard. Um, And we do that in a lot of different ways over those 50 countries. Yeah. And as your consumer, you are trying to put more power mm-hmm. and control directly into Sarah's hands. How do you go about doing that? So you and I both think of ourselves as consumers, and we like it when we have power, right? We like And it choice. And choice, mm-hmm. right? And there's a million different ways that effective companies give us that sense during the course of our day. Um, we think the idea of consumer-powered health care is really a powerful way to drive forward the agenda around universal health coverage, uh, which the whole world has aligned around now. Mm-hmm. And universal health coverage doesn't mean free health care. It means that everyone should have access to quality health services without a financial burden, an undue financial burden. doesn't mean free. Mm-hmm. It means good and accessible, right? So uh, consumer-powered health care is the idea that you start with a consumer, again, Sarah, and also... You take advantage of the amazing technological change that's going on in healthcare delivery today. Think of all the things that you and I can do with our cell phones, mm-hmm. 
uh, uh, with, um, you know, not necessarily being with a physician, but getting advice about a medical condition. Think of things like self-diagnosis, self-therapies, self-administered responses to a health condition. You can, for example, in the Global South, something like uh, Cyanopress, which is a self-administered, long-acting contraception. A woman can inject this herself subcutaneously in her thigh. It, it's a, it's a um, contraceptive that works for six months. Hmm. She doesn't have to go back to the health facility, which is maybe a two-day walk away yeah. where she might not find the product. This is just one example of all the ways in which we can put more power into consumers' hands and we think that can help drive progress toward universal health coverage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, she's initiating it yeah. in, in that particular case. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that universal health coverage because from what I just heard you said, say, you have to somehow segment markets. You have to find mm-hmm. out who needs to receive this for free, mm-hmm. who has to be subsidized in part, and who's going to pay market rate. How do you go about doing that? Right. Well, um, we think we have a lot of experience that, with that sort of market segmentation and honestly, we're learning every day how to do it better or how to, how to bring that approach uh, with greater fidelity. You know, the, the health system, whether it's in the United States or Zambia, involves a lot of subsidy and people not necessarily paying exactly what they should mm-hmm. or can pay. I think the idea behind segmenting markets is trying to make sure that the subsidy goes to the people who need it, not to the people who don't need mm-hmm. it. And if the subsidy is declining over time, which it is, no taxpayer wants to pay more than they should for subsidy somewhere else, then those of us working in global health better make sure that the available subsidy is only going to the poorest of the Sarahs, right? And there are other Sarahs who can pay more of the cost of their health care. Now, price is a burden, I mean a barrier, I should say. Uh, We have to be really cautious of pricing people out of services, but there are some ways and in almost every country, there are more ways than there were before for people to be responsible for more of the cost of their health care. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a couple of the things you do. And, of course, you were built on family planning. That was your, your core program. Today, Carl, how do adolescents access contraception? And what kind of changes are taking place and need to take place? Yeah. So adolescents everywhere probably face a lot of barriers in accessing not just contraception, but information about reproductive health. Yeah. We, we all remember what it was like to be an adolescent. It's an ugly and hard time of life, right? <laughs> not, not for me. Yours might have been perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is it's a passage. All of us go through it. Um, for years, I think even the best-minded organizations that were trying to help with contraception for young people made it available in kind of a clinical setting, um, thought that um, – you know, it was it was enough to sort of rebrand the products and kids would come and get them or young people would come and get them. And the more we understand, tr- again, trying to get inside the mind of the consumer, the more we understand that's not necessarily the problem that we need to solve. So let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. We've been working with the help of the Gates Foundation and the Children's Investment Fund Foundation on a program called Adolescence 360, which is designed to work in three countries in Africa, uh, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Nigeria, okay. and help young people with questions around access to contraception and, and help them avoid unintended pregnancy, which is a oftentimes a death sentence in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Becoming pregnant when you don't intend to can often be a death sentence. So how do we get people more access to contraception? Well, when we started this program, we thought, well, we would just employ some of the old tactics. We would, you know, make services cooler, or we would bring products closer, or we would, you know, all those sorts of tricks. But then we took a step further, and we started to really listen to the target audience. And um, for, say, a a young girl in Tanzania, what's one of the most valuable things she has? It's her fertility. Mm -hmm. It's her ability down the road to produce a family. It's super valuable for her. And to the extent contraceptives are seen as something that might put her fertility at risk. Yeah, yeah. It's a foreign thing. I don't know what it's going to do to my body. This I is my asset. This it is my, this my, my asset. This yeah. is my one asset. <laughs> yeah. And you're coming here telling me i got to shut it down, and I'm not so and I'm sure. Not, yeah, I'm not so sure. Not so sure about Can it. Can I turn it back on? I'm, I don't know. Exactly. So we start, We you know, you build the program from that perspective. Ah, let's talk to you about your life plans. 
let's talk to you about how your fertility and your ability to produce a family fits into that. Mm-hmm. Let's protect that first and foremost. Let's talk about how you can space pregnancy. Let's talk about how you can safely decide when you want to become pregnant because we know you probably want to become pregnant. Yeah. This is that, that was like you know a, a basic understanding that we should have had years ago. Yeah. But like we only, you're on my side. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> the idea. And we only got there by listening to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we look at contraception, we look at sexual and reproductive health care. How is that embedded into the SDG 2030 goals? Um, yeah. Do we have enough money to get there? Where do we stand with all that? Well, here's a little secret for you, Denver. We don't have enough money to get anywhere in, in terms of those goals. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean we're not working hard at it. So, you know, the one overarching SDG uh, sustainable development goal is health for all. Mm-hmm. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's you, really targeted. That's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can put a lot in that tent. Um, there are a lot of subordinate efforts. You may be familiar with the, the um, initiative that Melinda Gates launched mm-hmm. back in 2012, FP2020. Yep which was designed to put 120 million new women uh, with access to modern contraception by 2020, that effort will fall short. But there was progress yeah. in increasing access for women who want to avoid getting pregnant. Remember, you know, sometimes people think that <clears throat> contraception and family planning is about you know, preventing more births. And it is, but really, fundamentally, it's more than that. It's about letting women decide when they want to have kids. Yeah. And... Once you figure out how to put power, that power in the hands of women, then all sorts of other good things flow from it. Yeah, they control their lives. They control their lives. And so I think we could agree that it's really bad if there are women in the global south who want to avoid having their fourth, fifth, or sixth kid but can't because they don't have access to modern contraception. That's a problem we should try and solve Yeah, because it's going to be good for her other kids. It's Mm going to be good for her. It's going to be good for her community, her country, and for all of us. So – there's a lot of effort going into trying to plug that gap, respecting her rights, her ability to choose, listening to her. But there aren't enough resources to make the make the the entire thing work yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, as we mentioned, after family planning, you picked up other things: um, HIV, tuberculosis, safe water, also malaria. Tell us about your yeah. work in malaria. Malaria is a great story, right? Over the last. 10 to 15 years, the world has seen a dramatic decline in malaria. It still kills hundreds of thousands of kids, in particular in Africa, every year, but it's much less than it used to. And in some cases, we're actually on the path to malaria elimination, which is a huge achievement. Now, this this was the result of, I would say, three things, some innovative Uh, institutions and approaches like the Global Fund Mm -hmm. or the President's Malaria Initiative in the U.S. context. Some really dedicated philanthropists like Bill and Melinda Gates. Ray Chambers. Ray Chambers, right? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, And commitment, and critically, commitment on the part of, in particular, African leaders who said, yeah, we got to get ahead of this. We have to make faster progress against malaria because it kills so many of our citizens. So for 10, 15 years, you've seen the steady downward trend in malaria mortality. But, and there's, here's a but, mm-hmm. that trend is starting to reverse now. Why? Two things. People are getting tired of the investment, and there are more and more people. <laughs> Those are the two. So, you know, the point is you get down to very close to controlling and being able to talk about eliminating the threat from malaria, if you let your foot off the gas, and by the way, this is true of HIV as well. Oh, absolutely. If you let your foot off the gas because of demography, then you're going to see all those investments. It's like you built a 100-mile highway, you got to mile 99, and then you Go back. Just decided. Put it in reverse. Yeah, no more yeah. concrete. Yeah, we had uh, Chip Lyons on the show. From the oh, Elizabeth yeah. Glazer, and he was saying the exact same thing. We've, in some ways, we've almost made too much progress because mm. people don't think it's a problem anymore. Yeah. But that's a dangerous place to be because you can slip slide back very, very easily. And that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. So, And we just need to look at that as lost investment. It's all of our, it's everybody who's listening to this invested in this in these sorts of progress. And there's been amazing progress. I mean, there are millions and millions of people alive today who wouldn't have been. Yeah but for the investments that taxpayers made. So it worked. Right. But if you let up now... Yeah, you got to get the close. Yeah, you <laughs> got to get the close. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have said, Carl, we're at a pivotal moment in terms of primary health care. What's occurring right now to make this such a momentous time? Yeah. 
Well, there is this agenda around universal health coverage. So you got the whole world coalescing around an idea. Mm-hmm. It's actually not a new idea. It's been out there for a long time. But there's a new energy behind it, a new recognition that we need to all uh, move toward this target together. The SDG 2030 time frame is, is focusing a lot of people's minds yeah, on these It's really served its purpose. Yeah. And you have um, this this correlation of events or, or technologies and capabilities that, as we talked about earlier, put more power in the hands of consumers. Um, cell phone technology, which in the most remote parts of the world, I bet you've been there and I've been there. There's almost no one now who doesn't have access through themselves or a friend to a cell phone. No. So that puts you in connection with information. Mm-hmm. That puts you in connection with referral networks. Sure. You can, they're leapfrogging the U.S. in many ways because they don't have those legacy systems that we're stuck with here, and they're just taking a big leap. There's no copper wires yeah. strung across <laughs> Africa. Right. I mean, the copper came out of Africa, yeah. partly, but there are no telephone wires mm-hmm. made out of copper there because right. it's all gone cellular. cellular. So, um, you know, that plus innovation in technologies around diagnostics and therapeutics, as we mentioned, that all adds up to a leapfrog possibility, and we're excited about it. Yeah. PSI is pretty maniacal when it comes to measuring your impact. Share with us how you go about it and what some of that impact has been. Right. Our tagline is healthy lives, measurable results. And uh, measurement is one of our core values. So, yes, we're very proud of measurement. We measure a lot of things. At the top line, we're looking at uh, overall health impact metrics. And what are they? So, for us, it's basically something called a DALI, Disability Adjusted Life Year. Subset of that is a couple year of protection. That's a family planning metric. And also we're looking at users reached. So that's people reached who are using our products and services. And over the course of our current strategy, we're aiming for 90 million DALIs, 75 million CYPs, and 100 million users reached. Now, what does that mean? What are are 90 million DALIs? The way to look at that is a DALI is a year of healthy life that would have otherwise been lost to death or disease, but for the work that we're allowed to do with the help of others. So 90 million DALIs is 90 million years of healthy life that are added back to Sarah's account, Mm -hmm. if you want to think of it that way. It's money pouring into, you know, it's not money, it's years of healthy life pouring into Sarah's life account. Right. And, uh, and so productivity that, for all of us. And productivity yeah. for all of us. And, and that can come through avoiding an unintended pregnancy or getting treated for TB mm-hmm. or avoiding a malaria death or sickness that keeps you away from work or avoiding diarrheal disease that may keep your kids out of school. All those things added up. Yeah. And we, we put a tremendous amount of effort into modeling uh, each one of our interventions and how they add up to that health impact. Right. And you work with the World Health Organization, the World Bank. They are the ones who do the estimates on all this, and that then becomes yeah. a metric that kind of guides uh, what you're trying to do. We think of it as our retained earnings. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I like that metaphor. Uh, what's your business model? You're a pretty big organization, uh, over $500 million, between a half billion and a billion dollars. Um, what are all those different sources of revenue? And how important is philanthropic support to that whole picture? So philanthropic support, not surprisingly, is more and more important. The picture that we built over the last 50 years largely depended on, let's call them big public institutions. So in the U.S., that would be USAID Mm -hmm. or CDC or the Department of Defense. In uh, in Europe, it would be the, the U.K. foreign aid program called DFID or the German Development Bank or the Dutch um, Development Institution. But then... More recently, it would be institutions like uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Packard and Hewlett Foundation, so big, uh, old and not-so-old foundations, new institutions like the Global Fund for Mm -hmm. AIDS, TB, and malaria. And one of the most exciting things that has developed in our world in terms of funding for our work is, over the last five years, something called the Maverick Collective, which is a group of really passionate, um, highly energetic uh, women determined to make a difference in the lives of women and girls in the developing world. They are a force of nature. They're a force of nature. It was the Gates Foundation that challenged us to help uh, bring that uh, group of people together, and it's now got its own life. It's growing. Uh, We have uh, Maverick Collective members. We have Maverick Next Fellows, Mm -hmm. so more junior folks. And it's all about bringing their time, talent, and treasure towards solving the problems of women and girls around the world. 
You know, with a name like PSI, I, you've probably never heard of us before, Denver, or at least before you did your research <laughs> on us. And we don't have a street corner brand. You know, you're not going to find colleagues of mine trying to get you to give us $25 a month on the street corner. No, if we go outside and ask people PSI, we're not going to get too many takers that say yeah. I've heard of it. Maybe yeah. Save the Children or UNICEF, but not PSI. Yeah, well, Save the Children, its name is its yeah, brand, right? right? PSI's never had a model that focused on individual givers, but we do try and focus on people who are thoughtful about measurable impact. Mm-hmm. We were privileged to be featured in Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save. Yes, I know. He was on the show just a couple weeks ago. He's a fast, fascinating guy, and I think he's celebrating 10 years of that book. He did. That's why I got him on the show. All right. So you're <laughs> timely. Um, we've always been privileged to be among the organization that he holds up as as a place where you can be sure that your philanthropic dollars are having a measurable impact. Yeah. Because that's what we're determined to show. Yeah, you're like a, on the top of the give well list and all those different types of organizations. Yeah, How's uh, impact investing going with you guys? And, and where are we with that, at least from what you're seeing, between getting those competitive market returns and having a social impact? Is it kind of falling in some place? You know, I think you and I would agree there's more talk than reality on that so far. Oh, yes. Still. Yep. Uh, I think over the last five years, we've seen sort of a, a somewhat clearing out of the rhetoric and more focus on actual um, interventions that are funded through impact investing. I know there are other aspects of development that have started to make that work. We have a few examples of it, um, but not many. Mm-hmm. And I think there's still a lot of people out there who are interested in um, social returns, and we can provide measurable social returns. We just alluded to that. We can re- we can give return on investment in terms of years of healthy life, but they also want market returns along with it. Yeah. And that no concessionary returns. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, you hear that, you know. So let's let's be realistic about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to together, all of us in the sector, figure out how to unlock that tremendous pool of resources. Because my God, that that you know makes um, official development assistance a drop in the bucket mm-hmm. versus investable capital, risk capital yeah, that's out yeah. there. And you and I know there are a lot of people out there who can deploy huge amounts of risk capital who want to see a social impact return. Mm -hmm. So honestly, what I think is kind of missing now is there aren't enough intermediaries in the space Mm -hmm. to connect the risk pools of risk capital with outcomes on the ground. And, you know, I hope we can be one of those, but I know others are trying to do that too. Yeah. I have to say the ratio between words spoken on impact investing and deals done is pretty astronomical. I agree. Uh Talk a little bit about your corporate culture. You know, finding the right people Mm. to work for you and the kind of work you're doing is a challenge for every organization. What is it about PSI that allows you to attract and then keep some of these talented people? So, yeah, we're in a fight for talent all the time. I think we've got some great talent. One of the things I'm really proud of at PSI is that we have a, a very high number of people who've been there 15, 18, 20, 25 years. I mean, that's an incredible asset, um, and we're really proud of that. At the same time, uh, you know, at the more entry level for our organization, there's a lot of churn, and we work hard to try and keep people engaged, but it's a really competitive marketplace. Yeah. And so um, what's the corporate culture? Uh, it is one where uh, I hope we live out our values, measurement, trust, collaboration, commitment, pragmatism, mm-hmm. and honesty. Uh, we've always been a place that um, felt a little bit different in the nonprofit space. You alluded to it earlier. I mean, we sell a lot of things. We give a lot of things away for free. All those mosquito nets and malaria, we mm-hmm. give those away mm-hmm. for free. Mm-hmm. We sell a lot of condoms and contraceptives. So sometimes organizations, other organizations don't quite know, are you guys for profit? Or are you not for profit? We're very much not for profit, <laughs> let me assure you. Um, but so there's a bit of a corporate edge to the culture. At PSI, which we're proud of, and that we yeah, hold it'll be on very to. healthy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, at the end of the day, we we're in the business of saving and improving lives. We better be really focused about being business like. Mm-hmm. We better be focused on returns on that. You know, against that target. Um, there are a million organizations out there that are doing good things, and I respect all of them. Um, we want to be the one that is doing things with a. Um, private sector focus, a corporate orientation, a real dedication to measurable impact, 
and a long history of showing that we can do it in hard places. Yeah. You know, I have found that some of the best organizations are those that have um, hired people from the private sector. Mm. But you really can't hire people from the private sector unless you have that business orientation because they want to take their skill set and apply it for a nonprofit. But too many nonprofits don't give them that opportunity because they're not run with that business orientation. What about your philosophy of leadership, Carl, Um, the influences in your life that helped shape you as a leader and maybe a lesson or two you've learned along the way that has served you well in your current role? I've been privileged to work for a lot of really great leaders. In my previous life, I, I worked at the State Department and, um, uh, you know, for some really amazing people mm-hmm. um, on the public scene in the United States. Um, lots, of, lots of very positive lessons from um, great leaders across my career in the Foreign Service. Also, some really powerful lessons of what not to do, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just to be honest. Um, so, you know, the leadership culture that I think I brought to PSI and, frankly, that PSI has shaped in me mm-hmm. uh, is a lot about shared leadership. Uh, you know, it's a big organization. I, I There's certainly no sense of running it like uh, a dictatorship. Um, so there's, uh, you know, my approach involves a lot of delegation, a lot of collaborative thinking about how we move forward together, um, real effort to try and build a team culture. You know, the, one of the problems in nonprofits or challenges, I think, in nonprofits is that you could sometimes have too much consensus, if yes. that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes an awful lot of sense. You know, so there's, all, there's an excess of democracy in my world. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you have to be focused on just decisiveness. Oh, right. That's right. And too much consensus is chaos. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then you start to lose your talent. Yeah. Because if you're not capable of making clear decisions, then the best talent you've got will throw up their hands and say, well, I can find a better place. That's right. you got to listen and listen and listen. But every once in a while, you got to close the door and say, this is what we're going to do. And this is the way we're going to go. And hopefully, you've built up enough capital along the way so that everybody says, okay, yeah. I'm with you. I may not agree with you, but I'm with you. Yeah, at least you, that you heard me. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Um, let me close with this, Carl. You aspire to build the NGO model for the future. What does that vision look like and how far down the road toward it is PSI? So, I think the NGO of the future is going to be um, – more uh, self-sustaining, mm-hmm. less reliant on philanthropy, less reliant on giving of all sorts, more able to generate its own returns. So a blended business model. I think the NGO of the future is going to have very strong credentials in the global south. What does that mean? Does it mean headquarters in the global south? Maybe. Does it mean leadership from the global south? Maybe. Uh, does it mean you know a very dispersed um, corporate structure with a lot of uh, centers of gravity in the global south? Probably, mm-hmm. something like that. But it has to do all that in a way that's still efficient and not bloated, mm-hmm. right? I think the modern development institution of the future has to be one that uh, is a successful talent machine that is bringing in talent from all over the world and is allowing that talent to flourish in a lot of different roles, um, whether it's for five years or for 25 years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but being able to draw those talents from everywhere, so a very diverse a, a diverse approach to talent management and leadership. And ultimately, you know, the successful NGO of the future better be able to show that it's making a difference against the measurable indicators that the world has set for mm-hmm. how we're going to make progress over the next decade. So you have to be able to bring some scale. you got to be able to bring some discipline around measurement. And obviously, you have to be able to bring a commitment to the to the mission. Yeah. You got to know how big the problem is and how big your contribution towards it is, as opposed to helping a thousand and then a thousand fifty. You know, I mean, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 And if, you know, if you're not ambitious in this game, then you're not in the game. You're not in the game. (laughs) You're not in the game. And I also hear you say that in addition to being the CEO, you're probably also the chief talent officer. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope I am. (laughs) Oh, have to be. Yeah. Well, Carl Hoffman, the president and CEO of Population Services International, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and how people can help if they're inspired to do so. Thanks very much, Denver. www.psi.org. Learn all about our work around the world. Meet some of our people there. Learn about our innovative programming. And yes, if they're so inclined to help support us, there's an easy way to do that through the website. And you can see the impact of your gift in terms of years of healthy life. Well, thanks, Carl. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Denver. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. The Police Athletic League, together 
with the NYPD and the law enforcement community, supports and inspires New York City youths to realize their full individual potential as productive members of society. Their motto? The best friend a kid can have. And with us tonight is one of those friends. He is Fred Watts, the executive director of the Police Athletic League of New York. Good evening, Fred, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, the organization's been around for over 100 years. Tell us how it got started, Fred, and some of the history of the organization. Well, way back in 1914, Ooh. the police department saw a you know, number of youth in New York City and said, you know, these kids don't have much to do, and, you know, if they aren't doing much, trouble is going to ensue. And so they started to engage the youth in recreational activities. And this actually was the birth of our one of our signature programs, Play Streets. So the police cleared out some empty lots on the Lower East Side and basically invited the kids for a drop-in uh, recreation program. And that was the start back in 1914 for PAL. And if you race up over 100 years, we do play streets today with the NYPD and our staff. So that's how we start, and we're still sort of true to our origin. Your roots, absolutely. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about play streets today, because you don't close streets down quite the same way. It's uh, evolved over those 160 well, over years. Well, over the 100-plus years, I think some of the uh, – you know, the the complexities and the density of the city makes that difficult, although we do close a few mm-hmm. where the community is sufficiently engaged with us and the NYPD to clear out uh, cars and to operate the play street. But for the most part, we're in parks, um, NYCHA facilities, public housing. Yep. We'll have uh, parks and, and empty areas. And what we do is we essentially it becomes a drop-in summer camp. It's 100 percent free. We bring staff, we bring um, equipment, whether it's basketball, hoop, volleyball, uh, board games, Mm -hmm. and we also engage the police. And then together the kids drop in and they can spend a summer day on the the street free of charge. That's that's fantastic. I've known a couple of people who were a part of those play streets way back when. And it really gave them a sense of ownership of the street. I mean, there was a sense that this is mine. And that was really psychologically pretty important. I think it's important for the kids and it's important, I think, for the families because the family can say, you know, I've got a nine-year-old and he's stuck in the apartment. Or we, maybe we don't have quite the funds to send him to a summer camp. Or we're going in this down south in a couple of weeks. But for the next two weeks, it'd be great if he had some. So the the adults in the community sort of also own that play street because it's their play street and a place for their kids to yeah. go. I think when a lot of people think of the Police <clears throat> Athletic League, they think of youth maybe about nine years old and do not think of really, really young youth. But you do have an early childhood education program. What's that like? That's right. We actually have PAL kids, as we you know we typically call our participants. We start at the age of two. And mm-hmm. we've a very rec- we, we have been running an early childhood program often in conjunction with the federal Head Start program and with city programs. Um, Recently, we were very proud that we were selected by the federal government to run our, when I say our, they're our funder in partnership with the Head Start program, but we run our own. So PAL is the direct beneficiary of the federal government to run our own Head Start program. We're in seven places in the Bronx. I'm sorry, in Brooklyn and Queens. Mm -hmm. Uh, mostly underserved communities. We have about 600 kids. And I have to tell you, you know, the, the experience that I've had is you go to visit the the, um, the program. Let's say it's 100 kids in a, in a center. When you get there, you know, the neighborhoods, you know, can be rough, a little struggling. Yeah. It's, you know, you walk into the center. The kids are, you know, their faces are bright. The place is immaculate. Ah, uh, we have a woman, uh, Dr. Asneth Council, who does a phenomenal job in running these programs. And so we're really very proud of our early child. So those kids go from age two up to kindergarten. And we're also very proud that in the evaluations we've done, 100% of our children have been sort of uh, evaluated as ready for kindergarten. And that you know, in my day, being ready for kindergarten doesn't didn't mean that much, quite frankly. Everybody, but I'm the father of two kids, and being ready for kindergarten in the current world is a meaning is meaningful. And if you're coming from a difficult environment, it's more meaningful. So, oh, no doubt about it. I mean, so we're very proud of that. You can sometimes never catch up if That's you're right. not ready for kindergarten. So you really got to make sure you're at least at the starting line, if not even a little bit beyond it, when kindergarten bell rings. Well, they get a little bit older, and then they go into the junior police program. Now, tell us about that. Well, we have a full after-school program, all five boroughs. 
um, where kids come pretty much directly from school to engage in a variety of activities, academic, um, performing arts, sports. But of course, again, one of the key programs that we do, because part of our mission is to bring the police and community together, is we have this junior police program. And what essentially that is, is we tend to try to start them young. So they're more like third, fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And they get little t-shirts. And, but a police officer will come a couple of times a week and talk to them about certain things going on in their community. They'll go on trips, often law enforcement related. They'll go to the precinct. They'll learn about various aspects um, of policing. They'll, you know, do drills. They learn how to march. They And I have to tell you, <laughs> When you see these kids, they have a little culminating program at mm-hmm. the end of the year. And, I mean, often, you know, high-ranking police officers come and they sort of do their thing, if you will. Not only are the junior police very excited for what they've accomplished, but the kids that aren't in the program sometimes are in the audience. They want to know how they can do it next year. <laughs> oh, you know, So yeah. it has been and, – and, again, it comes to the key that we want to bring the police. The police have a difficult job. The community has – at times can have complaints about the police. Some of them are justified. But if you can bring them together in this, especially at a young age, you can really sort of bring that police and community, make that relationship better. Yeah, it's nice to get them together in a positive environment as That's opposed right. to perhaps on a on the street in something right. which is not quite as, as, uh, as positive. Uh, one of my favorites, and this is, again, for even older kids, is police commissioner for a day. Yes. So we have this pro- – and it's been going on – it goes back many decades. I want to say into as far back as the 40s, mm. um, 1940s. Um, what we do – and again, the relationship – PAL has a lot of educators and youth development. That's their job. That's what they want to do. The police obviously have a law enforcement job, but it's great when we can work together. So what we do is – our education team will create some um, essay questions. And we usually try to pick something that relates to um, either a problem or an issue in their community. It could be cyberbullying. Sure. It could be uh, you know, violence in schools. Opioid crisis was a couple exactly. years ago, if I remember. Yep. That's very good. And we then work with the police well, what um, t- to create this essay question. Then we send the essay question out to high schools throughout the city, Mm -hmm. and the kids write an essay. I think it's typically about a 1,000 words, so that's three or four type pages, and they're judged by our staff and the police of what what they, um, what we think the best essay is. And I've sort of buried the lead here. The question always focuses on what you would do if you were in charge of the police department for a day to correct um, the problem that we've issued. And I must say you get some tremendous answers in those essays. I don't – I mean we get maybe somewhere between 500 and 1,000 essays. Right. Um, I don't sift through all of those, but they usually show me the finalists. So, uh-huh. And then together with the police department, we pick the winner. But the great part about it is of that – of the people – hundreds of kids who enter, probably over 100 – participate in some way in this culminating event, mm-hmm. which is held at one police plaza. It's hosted by the police, police commissioner. And the, the, the winners, the top 100, get assigned to ranking members of the police department. And they spend the day with them. Oh, cool. And the, the police, the one who went, the true winner, the top winner, actually spends the day with the police commissioner. They go out to lunch. And so it's really a wonderful, it's educational, it's community police merging you know, at the culminating event, the teachers come, the the, the parents come. So it's really a it's really a very warm, exciting time. Have any of those ideas ever been implemented or used by you the know, police department? I have seen a couple that look strangely similar to a couple yeah. of the suggestions. Well, you know, they're going to have some insights that at, police probably don't have. They're well, that, at that age, and I must say, one of the ones that sticks in my mind now had to do with cyberbullying, which, again, is sort of a difficult thing to ask the police department to. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- they might be involved, but some of this is a more of a um, dealing with children's behaviors. But the insight that the child had, I had a sense of that writer's 
fears and concerns that I didn't have before I read them. Yeah. And I, so I do think that they um, – and I should also uh, emphasize that I, I can't remember the year. I should know this. But a p- person entered that contest. I want to say it was in the 1940s who ultimately became the police commissioner, Ben Ward. <laughs> so Benjamin Ward, who was the police commissioner in the oh, 1980s. Yeah, Benjamin and, Ward, yeah. yeah. He entered and won the police commissioner for a day contest. So he had to do that lunch a couple times. (laughs) (laughs) And then as the police commissioner. That's exactly right. He's the only host that was also a guest. (laughs) Talk a little bit about the summertime. You know, you talked about play streets and going to the neighborhood, but do you have any fixed summer camps where kids come? We do. Last summer, I believe we had 19 locations. And um, so our centers could, could... generally be cut, uh, divided into two types. We have seven sort of PAL centers mm-hmm. where everything that goes on there, by and large, is PAL. It's sort of our space. But the other more than a, probably about a dozen um, are co-located either in schools or in NYCHA facilities. They have certain names. Um, so when you put those all together, we run summer camps out of all of them, out of the NYCHA facility, out of the schools, and out of our own PAL centers. And they are full programs because they're difficult to staff because they they start at 8 o'clock, kids get breakfast, they stay all day. I think the checkout is somewhere between 5 and 6. Yeah. So it's a real full day. And, of course, it's the summertime and they're young kids. Most of the kids are from elementary, some middle schools, but mostly elementary mm-hmm. school. So you're talking from 6 to 12. They want to get outside. And, of course, we're inside. So we do have a lot of – we try to incorporate – Local trips, if the center is near a park, you know, we spend some time out there. So it really is a fun experience in the sense that the kids do come inside. They do get some order, but they also get some good old summer fun. Yeah, good. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And you also try to prevent a little bit of that summer learning loss. We try. And, you know, know, um, know, even though (laughs) I consider myself an advanced years, I vividly remember what it was like to be a kid. Most of us do. And, you know, you think that I don't really want to do schoolwork in the summer. So, but what we do try to do is keep them sort of just intellectually engaged. Mm -hmm. We have this great um, culminating event at the end of the summer called Culture Day, where the kids work on, um, throughout the summer, work on, they, they pick a, typically it's a region of the world or a country, and there'll be a topic, whether it's music or something about that com- food of that company. And then at the end of the year, the kids show their banners wow. and their artifacts. But w- what that does is the kids enjoy the activity throughout the, uh, throughout the summer. But then that event, they, they really are engaging their minds. They're writing something. They're working on something. And, and our hope really is that with activities like that, that we can keep the kids engaged so that when they go from fourth grade to fifth grade, mm-hmm. they're not really – they're sort of starting running. Right, um, right. Just keep them in touch. Keep them in touch. <laughs> yeah, keep them yeah. in touch. Let's talk a little bit about the police officers. How are they engaged? How many of them participate? Do they do this on their volunteer time, mm-hmm. their own time, or is it on well, even work in time, my or how time, does it go? Yeah, I've been the executive director, I guess, about five – and a little over five years, and it's changed a little even – when I from the time I started, it was primary. They have a unit, a community affairs unit. They have a youth strategies part of the police department, and we engage those officers as sort of part of their job. But most of our activities um, with the police were sort of a voluntary, or if the cops had a little extra time on their shift, they'd stop by. Mm-hmm. Um, the great advantage of the last several years of crime reduction and the police becoming increasingly community focused is that it's easier to engage more officers. Mm-hmm. There are more touch points with kids. So the so we have, for example, we have organized sports programs called Cops and Kids Sports Programs. And those, you know, require a t- designated people to coach the kids or play with the kids. And those are sort of organized in a certain way. But we can organize them kind of in con- almost as part of their job. So the, it's a, the answer to your question I'm going on here is it's a hybrid of volunteers, but also because of the police's focus on youth and community interaction, they are willing to have as part of the police officer's 
shift at a given time to come to a center or to engage with the kids in a certain way. So it, it gives us more touch points with the police, yeah. which is good. But, you know, the interesting thing about that, too, is that's really a reflection of the larger society. Because if you look at a lot of corporations where they used to have volunteer programs, now, particularly among millennials and, and Gen Zers, they expect this to be done on company time. Right. So it kind of goes across the board in terms of the way we are engaging people. Yes. No, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. How many uh, children participate on an annual basis in all we your have PAL programs? Typically, in all the programs, it's about – I shouldn't say it's about. Last year, was 20,000. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we have, a good, we have a good little number. And we're, we're in all five boroughs. So yeah. We've got a pretty broad reach. Have you been able to measure, Fred, the impact that this has on the young people and in the community? You know, we have struggled with getting the best numbers because part of it is who um, – well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't give the excuse. Let me tell you what we have been able to do. Mm-hmm. We often survey our participants, them, in some instances, parents and police officers, staff, as to – what we think we got out of the program. And we've gotten some very strong numbers in what children get out of the program. So, for example, we survey children and ask them their attitudes toward police before and after. And the improvement in their attitude is, is like 95 to 100 percent. Wow. We ask the same question of the cops. Mm-hmm. 100 <laughs> percent. So it's an interesting um, – so when we survey, we get information like increased self-esteem, uh, increased confidence, speaking skills, all these super important skills for success. The area we've struggled, I think, is the more hard-boiled, because we also would like to see if they would do better in school, yeah. attendance. Mm-hmm. We can get information from self-reported. W- you know, we want to be their mentors and, and their, you know, not guardians, but, you know, sort of people to look up to, and we kind of don't want to push too hard on what, you know, getting grades, and sometimes um, parents are a little reluctant for that. So we enter that a little more gently so we don't have quite the hard data that we um, see. One really spectacular um, piece of data that we have, or two I'll point out, one is we have a juvenile justice program Mm -hmm. where the kids, um, it's been expanded to really involve all kids with really at risk. Maybe they might be in foster care or homeless, but the program started its core was children who had been what we call court-involved. They had been arrested for some event, often not super serious, but something that needed to be checked. And those kids are in family court. They're put on probation. And um, uh, as a condition of their probation, they have to participate with the program. And I think in 2019, 96% of the kids that went successfully completed probation, right. which was – yeah. was significantly more than kids who didn't. So that's a hard statistic. That's, and, and roughly half of those kids ultimately um, participated in other PAL activities. Mm-hmm. So that was good. The second thing is we have a college access program, which we're trying to grow. We have about 100 kids in it now, but we're trying to really grow it. And those are high school juniors and seniors that come with an aspiration to go to college. In 2019, 100% of those kids enrolled in college. And we don't cherry pick these kids. Mm-hmm. If you want to come, you can come, but you then have to participate, you know, vigorously. We take them on college trips, we have speakers, we get them tutors, and so that's been really successful. And we just hope that we can do a lot more. Well, of that. Get some more money and grow it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've talked about the cops, we've talked about the kids. What about volunteers? Do you use volunteers in any capacity? And if so, what duties, duties do they take on? We do use volunteers. The, I guess the volunteers, I would put them in two categories. One are sort of corporations will look for opportunities, as you sort of alluded to earlier, for their staffs, their, their employees to participate in mm-hmm. some community. And so those staff are tailor-made for – well, those volunteers, I'm sorry, tailor-made for – larger events, often in the summer. So we have a carnival at Staten Island, 500 kids, and you got a man, you know, 30 booths and mm-hmm. face painting. And so the volunteers basically help us run a lot of, a, a lot of our larger events um, during, often in the summer, but throughout the year. Um, they also help us. We do a big holiday party, uh, 500 kids, um, and we, in that holiday party, the setup for the holiday party and the 
putting together of the hundred bikes, bicycles that are given away, there's a lot of hard work there where our volunteers work on that. So they tend to do the big events. We do have the second part is sort of the community person who just want, my mother used to do this. Mm. She, you know, just wanted to come to read Your to dad a local. Was a police officer my too, father right? was a police yeah. officer. Mother was a teacher. So yeah. it's probably not too surprising yeah, that I, yeah, that yeah, I am where I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we we try to engage either retirees, local community people who just want to interact with children. Mm-hmm. We have rigorous um, screenings for those yeah. folks, but. Um, that's how we do it. How is the organization funded? Does the city of New York provide any of it? And what's your private fundraising like? We do. Um, we have a significant government funds, federal government for the Head Start. City funds help us with a lot of after-school programs. Yep. Um, but we do uh, – we spend a lot of time doing private fundraising. Um, we've – I think we've been pretty successful, but our desires are greater than our funds, so – we keep at it, hoping to grow that, those private funds. Yeah, I'm sure that's almost your number one job going <laughs> yeah, out there, so we spend on lot, doors and asking for money. We spend a lot of time. Well, doing let's that. close with a, a couple things along those lines. You have a few events coming up in the next couple months, and one is the Legal Profession Luncheon, which is going to be held at the Behar Hotel on April 22nd. And at that, the Robert Morgenthau Award is given. Tell us the relationship that Pal has had with him. Well, Mr. Morgenthau, who passed away in. July mm-hmm. of, of 2019 at the age of 99. Right. He was just shy of his 100th birthday. He had been the president or chairman of the Police Athletic League since 1963. Mm-hmm. So we're talking breaking all records. And he was devoted. He was a very well-respected lawyer and oh, public absolutely. servant. Yeah. Um, but he gave his heart and soul to the PAL. And, and in fact, our vice chairman, uh, said that he was the heart and soul of PS. So he had this really deep relationship um, as a leader, as a fundraiser, but but really almost, it's I, I don't want to overstate it was almost spiritual just because he cared so much and it it trickled down to the board and it certainly trickled down to all of us. Now it happens that I started my legal career working for Mr. Morgan mm. and you know when you're a young uh, uh, employee, I worked for the Manhattan DA's office. You don't have much interaction with him, but over time, because I worked there a long time, I got to know him. So he was really a tremendous. He's a tremendous sort of standard bearer in the legal community and in the uh, not-for-profit sort of youth development community. So this award that was developed uh, in honor of him is is a special award, and, and in fact. We do. It's, it focuses this dinner. I'm sorry, luncheon focuses on the legal community. Yeah, but, and I, you know, obviously I go to it each year, and you can tell we honor some very spectacular lawyers, mm-hmm. but they're proud to get that Robert M. Morgenthau Award. So it's it's nice that even in you know after his passing, he's still contributing to PAL by stimulating this, um, uh, keeping this. Uh, luncheon going and 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 you know we've got partners from big law firms that yeah. want to be a part of it and I, a lot of it has to do with him that's yeah, a nice legacy big shoes to fill that's for sure <laughs> yes and is. finally the second one and i just got an email on this the other day is the pal 5k is coming back on may 17th where's that going to be yes we're going to be in prospect park cool. we made a, we made a little change we used to for the first four years we did it in riverside park um we do it with other nonprofits. But that was always in November, and it seemed like each November it was a little colder than the, colder than the November before. The one in Prospect Park is in May, yeah. so we decided that we would skip last November and try a warmer climb. Um, but it's really a lot of fun because what it does is it allows the staff's passion mm-hmm. uh, for the kids to for them to fundraise among their friends. It allows people like me to ask people for money and our friends, but it also gets us. Uh, last year, we um, we were particularly proud. We had a handful of teenagers, and they participated. And, you know, when I email my friends and ask them to donate, sponsor me for my uh, 5K, eh, some do, some don't. But if you ask them to sponsor a teen, yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll do it. Show them a picture of the teen. Oh, I'll give it to there you. There you go. So it's, it's, it's helpful. And, and it's also great to have the, the, the youth, um, you know, participating not only in their activity – 
but actually helping the larger organization. So. Sounds fantastic. Well, Fred Watts, the executive director of the Police Athletic League of New York, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and how people can help and maybe even sign up for this race if they should be so inspired <laughs> yes. to do so. Well, you can learn basically everything you need to know if you go to um, palnyc.org. Um, Google that. You'll go right to the website, and there's all sorts of information about what we do, how you can support us, and our events, which would include the 5K. So thanks, Fred. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Neil Barnard, author of the new book titled Your Body and Balance, The New Science of Food, Hormones, and Health. Thanks for listening. Stay safe this week, and do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.